When we examine the human heart, we find within it a joy-seeking missile. You and I are not made for mild pleasures, temporary happiness, occasional positive feelings. We are designed to lock onto the greatest source of joy available in our immediate environment and by our best understanding. We, you and I, we seek joy. We look for it. We desire it. We long for it. And when we do not find it, what happens is we dull our senses with lesser pleasures, impermanent highs, distractions, entertainments, business, modifying the constant seeking for joy, but yet not removing it. And soon enough, Within the design of our own souls, again, there's a fresh searching for something bigger, brighter, better, higher. That which we call joy and which the Bible says can only be discovered in one place. Listen to how Paul describes that place in verse 11 of chapter 5, his letter to the Romans. You'll find it on the worship folder right in front of you. He says this, more than that, we also rejoice, joy, rejoice. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the place. Through whom we have now received reconciliation. What does this sentence mean in its context? I think it means the following. Our rejoicing, courageous confidence can be even more in God right now. Let me say that again. Everything's going to hang off this statement. Here it is. Our rejoicing, courageous confidence can be even more in God right now. Right now. Let me explain that and then apply it. I'm going to explain it in six sides of Paul's hexagonon of joy. Here they are. They're going to be fairly brief, six of them. One. Paul is saying something new that has not yet been considered. He says it's more than that, or not only that, but also. So this verse is partly the conclusion to this whole paragraph from verse 1 through to chapter 11. This whole paragraph is saying, because of our justification, therefore comes this certainty, this conviction, this definite confidence because of what Jesus has done. And he's concluding that, but he's not only concluding, he is also saying there's something even more. Something else that he hasn't yet mentioned, which is an amazing thought, because he's already mentioned salvation from God's wrath, (laughs) the death of Jesus on the cross, the pouring out of God's love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, and now he says, and there's something more. Not only that, but also something more, new. What is it? Well, it's about to This rejoicing that he introduced in verse 2. Now, as we've seen, by rejoicing, Paul means this word boasting. He said before in Romans that we have as human beings and as sinners, we've all not just made mistakes, we've offended against the holy God, and therefore we have nothing to boast about before God. And yet, because of what God has done through Jesus Christ, we now do have someone to boast about, namely Jesus, and this is the rejoicing. So it's about this audacious, we have defined it as, bold, deliberate, courageous exaltation, glorying, glorying, 
I love uh, some of the old Christian leaders that I've come across around Chicago. One of the first leaders of the Pacific Garden Missions, you ever come across it, it's an amazing place in downtown Chicago. He went around saying, Hallelujah, so much he was named Hallelujah Harry. Hallelujah Harry has something to teach College Church. It's a little on your face, perhaps. One of the challenges of being a Bible-believing Christian is we've been taught since our mother's milk that we should be serious about God, and that is true. And yet, if it is all serious, it is missing something. The seriousness and the joy are two wings of the bird that will give flight to gospel productivity. If you're only serious, you won't be very productive. If you're just cheery, there will be no substance to your joy. You need both. All serious, and the atmosphere is somber. All superficial happiness and the atmosphere lacks reality. Tell me about suffering. Tell me about something real. Tell me about how God made everything. If it's just cheery happiness, it lacks substance. So we need seriousness. But seriousness alone is not the mark of gospel Christianity. What is the mark of gospel Christianity? It is joy. Why? Because of Romans 1 through to 4. Therefore, since this, we rejoice. If you have no joy at all, I wonder whether you're a Christian. Or at least you're not thinking right, as we'll see as we go through this sermon, I trust. Here's what it means to be a well-taught, well-thought-through Christian. Rejoice. It's not passive. It is active. It is actively, audaciously, courageously, confidently exclaiming joy. I'm not just talking about cheeriness, substantial, real joy. Hallelujah, Harry. Something to teach College Church. Many times since I've been here at College Church, people have come up to me after a sermon and said, I was just so moved, I wanted to shout out amen or hallelujah, but I know we're told not to do that around here. I'm not sure who told you not to do that, but I hereby give you permission to rejoice if you needed it. I've heard people say, we don't clap because clapping is giving attention to humans. Sounds like some of you are already disobeying that rule. (laughs) Again, I don't know where that came from. I've been trying to discover where that first began, and I have asked various people, and none of them want to give me a straight answer, which may itself be a sign of something. Of course, applause can be human. It can be clapping someone because they've done a good job, or it can be applause to God because He has done something truly amazing. It's a human thing, but it's about intention. It's not whether you clap, you raise your right hand or your right foot. Someone at uh, the South Wheaton campus asked me whether we raised our hands at the benediction, and I said, well, no, we raise our right feet. And he wasn't sure whether I was being ironic or not, but (laughs) I guess it's the British personality, you know. I don't care whether you raise your right hand or your right foot or twiggle your left eyebrow ever so slightly in enthusiastic delight. Some personalities are more exuberant than others. I completely get that. And the way we express our joy will be different depending upon our personality, our background, our bringing our culture. But joy itself is not a cultural artifact. Paul does not say, we rejoice except those people who are really serious about the Bible. 
Third, not only is this something new here, not only is it this courageous, confident rejoicing, it also, Paul says, specifically in God. Compare, if you will, this with verse 2. There we are told, in very similar language, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but here it is in God. In other words, here it is not about the future, it is about something right now in God. What does that mean? Here's one illustration. Recently, a Christian doctor was serving in Africa during the Ebola crisis. He contracted Ebola. He told CBN News about this. He said, I was just focusing on the Lord. I tell you, I hung on to the Lord's prayer like a drowning man. I prayed through that prayer over and over again. I wept through it most of the time, and that is joy. He say, how is that joy? He is suffering. Don't you remember what Paul said in verse 3? We rejoice in our sufferings. In other words, there is for the Christian an objective reality that means that even in sufferings that, of course, themselves are not happy things, but even then we have reason to rejoice. Why is that? Because God is sovereign and God loves His people. We say, how can I experience that? Well, you do what the doctor said he did. You focus on the Lord. You say, that sounds a little trite. I say, hear it from the lips of an Ebola survivor. Or look at it like this. What are the alternatives? The man who boasts in his wealth is undone by a bad economy. The man who boasts in his health is undone by a heart attack. The man who boasts in his own self is undone by his own real true morality when he reads not just the Ten Commandments, but Jesus' interpretation of them in the Sermon on the Mount, you may not have killed, but you have for sure hated. What are the alternatives? Perhaps family is your God. You invest in your children always, your grandchildren. If family is our God, then what happens when we have a bad marriage? It will destroy us. But if God is our God, then whether our romance is scintillating, boring, or troubling, no matter, our joy is secure. A woman says, I make a million dollars a year. Another woman says, I make a million dollars a month. Where now is your joy, first woman? Comparison is the thief of joy. Now, the only way to have joy that is above all is to have joy in the one who is over all. It's the only way. Becomes very practical, very quick. People come up to me and say, I'm not sure I can stay in my marriage anymore because I'm so unhappy. Here's their thinking. They think they have a marriage problem. And the solution is to find a different marriage. But in reality, such a person does not have a marriage problem, not really. What they have is a joy problem. Follow this logic with me. If I think my joy is in my marriage, then when my marriage is boring, I will be, of course, tempted to give up. If I think my joy is in God... Well, then, when my marriage is boring, I will have infinite resources to invest in my marriage out of the treasure of rejoicing in God. 
And so it gets practical really quick. Someone else comes up to me and says, all these statistics today show that uh, this massive percentage of people, even Christian people, are looking at pornography every week. What are we going to do about it? We have a sex problem. Well, perhaps we do have a sex problem, but I think we have a bigger problem, namely a joy problem. Again, think with me. If I think sex is the ultimate joy, then I will be dissatisfied and search for satisfaction with no resolution in sex. If I think God is the ultimate joy, sex becomes just one expression of an overflowing, abiding, joyful state, a joy to fight for with practical tools, some of which I will give us at the end. What has happened, the lost art of Christian celibacy? Well, it will be rediscovered when we discover that sexual intimacy is just one expression of a joyful intimacy with God, a reflection of a far greater intimacy in God. That just sounds like pie-in-the-sky preacher theory to me, you say. Well, I've had people tell me about their experiences with Christ, which are so profound, so joyful, that they say sexual activity, sexual activity pales into insignificance by comparison. I think one of the biggest signs of our idolatry of sex is that we cannot believe that there's anything better. There is. <laughs> His name is Jesus. Sexual profligacy over-sexualization. What is that? It's a sign that a society is losing its vision for joy in God. And the way to solve it? Rejoice boldly in God. That's what he's saying. It's active. It's an assertion of will. I will rejoice in God. But not just in God. Fourth, also through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's very specific about this, Paul. He mentions Jesus over and over again in case we miss it. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. I read a survey this week that attempted to show that college students are distancing themselves from religion, but at the same time are more and more interested in spirituality. Actually, those statistics have been around for a long, long time. And the reason then why it's so important to emphasize what Paul is saying in these verses about specifically Jesus is because Christians are not, in any meaningful sense of the word, religious. I fully understand that Christianity is categorized in education as one of the monotheistic religions, and I've been a part of those education environments, so I get that. But the bigger truth is that it is not a religion. How's that? Well, all religions are systems of moral improvement projects based upon a certain set of rules. Five pillars of Islam, way of the Buddha, sacrifice of the temple pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of religion, early to bed, early to rise, makes man healthy, wealthy, and wise. We have to notice what is missing. Someone once said, success is 1% inspiration, 98% perspiration, and 2% attention to detail. 
Now, I've repeated this truth a couple of times. Have you noticed? Christianity is not, in any meaningful sense, just another religion. Let me tell you this. Paul repeats it nine times in the space of what we call our 11 verses. Nine times. First 11 verses of chapter 5. Jesus. Why? Because Christianity is religion's antimatter. Wherever the gospel is truly preached, this is what happens. Religion decreases. When the gospel is truly preached, religion decreases and Christ increases. He's not a guru, a teacher, a moral instructor. He is the grace-filled Savior. I love the story I heard from Dick Lucas about C.S. Lewis One time, apparently, C.S. Lewis was walking past a room of people discussing what is different about Christianity from all the other religions of the world, and C.S. Lewis is said to have poked his head in the door and simply said, that's easy, it's grace. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ is rescue, grace, not religion. It is all, Paul says, again and again through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we pray in the name of Jesus, it's not just, you know, oh, I've got to say that because I forgot. We always say that as Christians. What we are asserting is we're not religious. Instead, we're a rescue faith. It's through Jesus. It's through Jesus. Then fifth, not only is this rejoicing in God through Jesus, the rescuer, it is also now, Paul says. So here's what's new about this rejoicing, this verse, the now and the reconciliation we'll see finally next. This is not only about the future, not only about the hope of glory, not only about being rescued from the wrath on the day of judgment. This, Paul says, is something now, now. So desperate for this truth, the the joy-seeking missile locking on to what we perceive as the highest joy right now in our immediate environment. We, we, We want it. Paul says, now. I was amused to discover this week there's an organization called Mars One that's been set up to send astronauts, human astronauts, four of them to Mars. And I was amazed to find out they've had more than 200,000 people apply for the privilege of never seeing Earth again and taking a one-way ticket to the Red Planet. So far, they've managed to get the list down to 100. I want something now. There's this desire in us captured by the movie Interstellar, if you saw that last year, to, to find a, a solution now to environmental problems, global security issues, political frictions in our country. And so the preacher comes, he says, heaven. And we go, I want something now. And we, even if it's as fanciful as life on Mars... As risky as joining a humanitarian organization, giving relief in a war-torn area of Syria. I'll risk my life for something now. Or showy as building your own personal dream home, McMansion. Fifteen different colored bathrooms with gold faucets. 
Oh, heaven, that's fine. What about now? But you see, Christianity is not only about heaven, though it certainly is about this new heaven, the new earth, the whole new creation, not just spiritual sort of ghosts walking around, but a new body, a new whole universe. But it's not only about that, it's something right now. We have a position, a purpose, a power. We have position in Christ. We're joined to him spiritually. We're in him. We're not just saying prayers. We're in Christ. We have a purpose. You, if you're a Christian, have been called by Jesus into his body, sent by him on the greatest mission on the face of the planet. That is to redeem people for glory. You have that purpose. You have a position, you have a purpose, and you have power. Christ in you, and you in Christ, the Holy Spirit. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Now, So, well, that sounds fanciful. What on earth, how could that? So Paul concludes. Here he concludes. We have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation is a word that perhaps seems a little like, well, why do I need that? Here's one illustration of it. Hold with me as I work it through. Uh, Leslie Gore uh, was the singer behind that song that I guess all of us have heard at one point or other, whether we wanted to or not. It's my party and I'll cry if I want to. And Leslie Gore uh, actually died this week and it made me think about that song. Now here's the reason why this word reconciliation comes as, so he could have ended with now, but he doesn't. He ends with reconciliation. So why is that the final exclamation point on his sentence? Paul's always very careful with his writing. Why? Because Paul's teaching about joy is frankly showing us that it is God's party. Reconciliation makes no sense if you have no one you need to be reconciled to. If God doesn't doesn't exist, you don't need to be reconciled to. If God is sort of deist, that is distant, unmoved mover, who sets the ball of the universe rolling but isn't really interacting with us or caring about us, we don't need to reconcile with that kind of God. And that actually is the kind of God many of us unthinkingly impute, reckon to the universe. David Wells, a Christian thinker, said this, quoting from... Um, a man called Christian Smith, that Americans' default religion is what he called moralistic therapeutic deism, which means we tend to think it is our party. God made us, he makes the rules, and it's his job to make us happy. It is our party, and if we are not happy, then we have every right to complain, switch gods, and do our own thing. Here comes the God of the Bible, the one to whom we must give allegiance, to whom we must give allegiance, not the other way around. So the simplest way to summarize the message of the Bible, four words, God, us, Jesus, response. God made us to be in a relationship of loving obedience to him. We have all rebelled against him. We must respond by faith, that is, Real commitments. God, us, Jesus, his sacrifice response. In other words, Jesus came, he died, he rose again, and he will return, and we must be.
be reconciled. This is, Paul was saying, this is why it's the exclamation point. This is reality. This is the truth. We must be reconciled. This is the holy God of the whole universe. Says Paul, if we have trusted Jesus, total personal commitment to him, then we have received reconciliation. And and this is not something only for the future, it is now. In other words, the reason why people do not rejoice is not only because their God is too small, it is also because their gospel is therefore all about them. It's, It's just about them. See, everyone, Christian or not, has a gospel. We have a truth that we tell ourselves about reality, a truth that we repeat in our minds and perhaps even say on our lips when we're driving a car when no one can listen, but they can look through the window and wonder what we're talking about. You have a a gospel, a message that describes what you think is the truth about reality and therefore the right way to live. Individuals have their own gospel. Cultures have their own gospel. The English, they love the gospel because they can talk about it. The Welsh love the gospel because they can sing about it. The Irish, they love the gospel because they can fight about it. And the Scots love the gospel because it is free. (laughs) What about Americans? What about Americans? The predominant gospel of the contemporary Western world is the gospel of self-fulfillment. You have been taught through media, through TV shows, through teachers at schools, over and over again, the path to joy is to rejoice in yourself. That's the message. And it's natural enough because as the transcendent disappears, as God sort of begins to become less real to our culture and sort of moves back, this joy-seeking missile is seeking something to lock onto and we lock onto the nearest sort of ultimate thing we can discover in our immediate environment, namely ourselves. If you like as a culture, we follow the yellow brick road to see the wizard and look behind the curtain to discover that the wizard of Oz is nothing but a man putting levers that activate a humanistic machine. There is no wizard. There is no God. All that is left is the self. And so we lock onto that to find an ultimate expression of joy. And we realize that unbridled selfishness doesn't work. What goes around comes around. And so we modify our selfishness to let other people's selfishness fit into it too. We write a bucket list of things that we must do before we die. Visit the Taj Mahal, climb the highest mountain. We celebrate, eat, pray, love, explorations, as long as those explorations don't prevent other people from doing the same. And all along, if we buy into this attitude to life, If you buy into the attitude of the gospel self-fulfillment, you will be disappointed. It is a lie. 
Let me tell you some people who've tried that in one version or another. Voltaire, intellectually, said, I wish I'd never been born. Great man, great philosopher. I wish I'd never been born. Lord Byron, artist. The worm, the canker, and grief are mine alone. Money. Millionaire Jay Gould. I suppose I'm the most miserable man on earth. Lord Beaconsfield. Aristocracy. Youth is a mistake. Manhood a struggle. Old age a regret. War. Alexander the Great. Weeping in his tent. There are no more worlds to conquer. If you buy into the gospel that joy is found in self-fulfillment, you will be disappointed. And you think, well, what's the alternative? The alternative is religion. Listen carefully. I am not saying rejoice in religion. No. I I love the story of the pastor who one Sunday found the roads to church blocked. It had been a snowstorm or something like that, and he decided to skate on the river to get to church instead. And when he arrived, he found some people were horrified that he skated on the Lord's Day. After church, there was a meeting. It went on for a while. The dear people grilled him over and over again until finally one of them asked, Did you enjoy it? And when the pastor answered, frankly, not really, the meeting disbanded with agreement that then it didn't really matter. Rejoice in God. (laughs) Through Jesus Christ, the Lord. So I think then this passage is teaching the following. Our rejoicing, courageous confidence can be even more in God right now. Two questions for application. Why is that sometimes not the case? And how can we rejoice like that when perhaps we struggle to do so? So why is that sometimes not the case? Three quick reasons. One, I think... You and I, we sometimes overreact against superficiality. Maybe you're someone who loves a big God view of God. You love really substantial teaching. You love theology. You don't want superficial happiness. That's all fine. But it doesn't mean we don't rejoice. We overreact against superficiality. Some of us, I think. Two, we are overly busy. This seems a prominent problem of uh, suburbs, of large metropolitan areas. We are busy. The kind of joy that Paul is talking about here takes time. You need to reflect upon the goodness of God. That takes time. Stare at what Jesus did. Not a passing glance, but a stare. 
pray for the joy of the Holy Spirit. Not a prayer, but seeking, asking, knocking. We're often, you and I, overly busy. Three, we sometimes don't think clearly enough. And I've said a number of times that there's, there's plenty of emotion in, in, these, in the Bible, for sure, certainly in these verses, but it requires thinking. In other words, what has God done? Who am I in Christ? What does it really mean to have the Holy Spirit within me? What does it really mean to have His love poured throughout my heart? If we don't think... We'll just go round and round in circles, and the antidote to joy, the, the joy killer anxiety, we'll go round and round in circles, keeping us up at night. And what you need to do to reverse that spiral of anxiety, you need to consciously replace it with an upward cycle of thinking biblically about reasons to rejoice. If God has done this for me, how will he not also give me all things? Those are some reasons, I think, why we, why we don't rejoice. How can we rejoice? Three brief instructions. One, repent of unbelief. Now, that is bold. It seems to me if the things that we're saying here are true... If this is true, then if I have no joy whatsoever, I must not be believing something about God and the gospel. What aspects of the gospel are you doubting that are therefore detracting from your joy? Repent of unbelief. To refocus on God, not yourself. I'm fully aware there is a time for self-examination, but self-examination can become navel-gazing if it is not constantly refocusing on God. That's why we do church. That's why we do Bible study. That's why we do prayer. To refocus on God, not yourself. Do you spend more energy thinking about what is wrong with you than how you are now right with God through Jesus Christ? And then three, rejoice as a conscious act. This is, Paul is talking about something that is deliberate, an act of will, almost courage in the face of adversity and alternative data points to rejoice because of this message and this historical reality of the cross. Conscious act of audacious, bold courage. How do you do that? Well, maybe this week, I don't know what your schedule is and what's going on in your life, and maybe this week you could pick one song from the hymnal, one song from whatever website, webpage you like of Christian singing, one song to God. And actually sing it. Now, if you're like me, you might want to do that in the shower when no one can hear. But actually sing it to God this week. Rejoicing, courageous, confidence, even more in God right now.